We're in a series, or about to be in a series, entitled The Life You've Always Wanted. Just to say, the next few weeks, we're going to be talk, focusing on uh, the book on the stuff from the book on the left. That's where we've taken the title of the series from, The Life You Always Wanted, by John Altberg. Uh, I know several of you have made sure you've got hold of copies of that book already, but if you haven't done so, I think there's still a few available on the new sheet out there. What... Um, I wanted to do over these few weeks is just help us continue uh, in this journey of bedding down a relationship with Jesus. Our focus of our worship this morning has so much been about focusing on him, reminding ourselves that that's where our life comes from. And we want to help us keep doing that over these next few weeks in different ways. My title for this morning is Sustainable Life, Why It Matters for Us to Be Rooted in Christ. And we're going to start there in a kind of bit of, a, bit of an overview. Um, so let me ask you a question for starters. How many of you were actually here back in September 12 when a guy called Roy Godwin from Fowler Brennan spoke to us? Yeah, okay. It's interesting how much the church here changes because it's only about half of you. Well, how many of you have heard of Fowler Brennan? Ah, slightly more of you. Um, Back then in September, the Roy Godman, who leads that community in, down in West Wales, came and spoke to us. Uh, and it was a very sobering morning, because I think we probably had sort of all the stories we'd heard about Valder Brennan, the amazing things God was doing there. We had this kind of expectation that we were going to see kind of bells and whistles and signs and wonders. And the guy came and spoke to us, and the main thrust prophetically of what he had to say to us was, wake up wake up we were people who knew about knew it all but we'd fallen asleep as it were touch of the layer to see in church maybe and there was a real challenge that I personally remember being very sobered by in thinking God is clearly speaking and we need to take it seriously and much of what we've been doing in various ways over our church life over the last year and a half has reflected that in the ways in which we've sought to provide resources to help us all kind of re-engage or maybe engage for the first time in getting to grips with our relationship with Jesus. So we've produced things like the Breathe booklet. And if you've never picked up one of those, there's some of those on the table uh, outside in the hall there. We've um, encouraged various resources. We've, in much of our kind of life together, been focusing on kind of the balance to our, our lives together being like a wonderfully balanced triangle. We look pretty silly if we walked around looking like triangles, but it's the, the point of those three elements in our lives. Our relationships together, our expression of our life out into the community and winning others to know Jesus, and importantly, perhaps most importantly of all in some ways, recognising that none of that is possible unless we're drawing on the life of God. That's the up bit. And so we've had this focus on... Re-engaging in different ways, I think, over these last two years with getting that balance right to our lives. And this morning is kind of a refresher, therefore, just underlining to us why it matters for us to be rooted in Christ. I'm not sure that's the best subtext for our title of Sustainable Life, because I think most of us know why it matters. We know kind of the, the theory, the problem is the practice. At least if you're anything like me. You know, I might have been a Christian for probably more years than I care to remember. Um, and that's been great. But I haven't got this thing about really engaging with God in that kind of way that Jesus talks about, licked yet. So I trust that what I'm going to be showing this morning is a little bit of a sort of, not so much a, this is it, it's great, it's wonderful, let's really encourage one another. More a, guys, let's kind of join this journey together and help one another do the thing that we know really matters, which is to keep pressing into God and getting to know him better. Uh, in case you just need a little bit of refresher convincing, let me remind you with some verses from John's Gospel that Jesus himself modelled it. He modelled this dependence upon God, this close relationship with God his Father. John 5.30 says, By myself I can do nothing. I seek not to please myself, but the one who sent me. 
And those other verses in John express similar, in similar ways the fact that Jesus knew that even as the Son of God, having emptied himself and come down to earth, there was nothing he was going to be able to do unless he was staying close to his Father, drawing on the strength, the power, the wisdom of God for his life and doing what, his father, what would please his Father. So Jesus modelled it. Paul testified to it. In Philippians 3.8, Paul very powerfully talks about everything that he had done outside of God as being like street garbage. If anything I achieved in my flesh, I consider it to be rubbish. the, The real contents of our bins that go out once a fortnight. The stuff that I've seen, sadly, piled up on some of the streets around the world that is absolutely disgusting. That's how Paul saw anything that he achieved outside of God. Rubbish. Uh, And he went on in in other verses in Philippians and Ephesians and Corinthians to express similar things. Knowing that I can do all things through him who gives me strength. So Jesus modelled it. Paul testified to it. Perhaps most familiar of all, Jesus himself, they want to expand that in John 15. And Arlene's just going to come and read that to us. Okay. Uh, This is one of my favourite verses, and it's interesting when we were thinking about this coming up to preparing it, we both independently had uh, this scripture on our minds. So that's always cool, isn't it? So Jesus said in John 15, I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he's like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, Ask whatever you wish, and it will be given to you. This is my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you obey my commands, you will remain. Sorry, I've lost. You will remain in my love. Just as I've obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. I've told you, this is so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. My command is this. Love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this that he lays down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants, because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I've made known to you. You didn't choose me, I chose you, and appointed you to go and bear much fruit, fruit that will last Then my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. This is my command. Love each other. Thanks, Ali. We're not going to sort of spend all the morning looking at John 15. I just want to make a few comments in passing, but to kind of sit there as the kind of Scripture in the back of our, our minds and our hearts about how we need to be kind of thinking about the, what it means to have 
a sustainable life. It means, obviously, to be abiding in Jesus. Apart from him, we can do nothing. The thrust of the passage is that God wants us to be fruitful. And in order for us to be fruitful, we need to be totally close to Jesus. You cannot have the one without the other. And Jesus was actually taking up a picture that had been used of Israel as the vine and saying, actually, now I'm the true vine. Israel had this kind of role to model what God and what God was like and to what relationship with God was like to the nations around. And they'd messed it up completely. Uh, over the centuries, uh, we, that's the story of the Old Testament in many respects. And Jesus now comes and said, actually, we're going to try again. I am the true vine. And you're going to find how to display the life of God to those around you by abiding in me. Israel had failed. Jesus had come to show them there was a new way in which fruit could happen. And that fruitfulness, as I say, is for the branches to be fully knitted into the vine. We know this stuff, but we need to kind of get it in here afresh. You know, We know it, but we don't live like it. I mean, even this week, uh, it came starkly to me again personally. Um, and one of the things that I, I do in my spare time is I'm chair of governors, one of our local primary schools. It was a full governing body meeting on Wednesday night. Um, I was leading it. And I knew that there were some tricky things that we had on the agenda. And I'd done all the preparations and reading the papers and preparing practically. But somehow, the one thing I hadn't really done was think, God, I need your help here. Now, that may be obvious to you out there, but I missed it on Wednesday. And so I go in practically prepared, and we go through the meeting, and I come out the other end thinking, well, I've survived, but I'm not sure we've quite had the discussion we should have had. I'm not quite sure we've made the decisions we should have had, and I certainly don't feel at peace. And then it was like, I thought, ah, well done, Elmit, yet again, own strength rules, Elmit one, God nil. Um... And it was another case of Paul's, the good that I would, I don't do, and that which I wish I didn't do, I keep on doing. God, thank you that actually you have the remedy. So what I, I realised was preparing this week was that we all struggle to be frogs. I'm sure many of you have seen those armbands, just like the JJW... You know, what would Jesus do badges? We've got the fully rely on God badges. We all need to learn to be frogs. And that is, I think, for me certainly, probably one of the major challenges of my day-to-day walk with God. I know the theory, but do I live like a frog? Do I live like I'm fully reliant on God? Sadly, I don't think I do. Um, take two minutes just to... Talk about the following with the people around you. We often hold up these things, some daily devotional time, maybe reading the Bible regularly, personal prayer, praying with others, a weekly period of rest, as kind of elements of our our life that are actually helpful to us in connecting with God and abiding in him, staying close to him. Just discuss with the people, person next to the people around you, which of those is the one that actually you have a positive testimony about. Let's not get into the doom and gloom this morning, the ones we fail on. Share something positively out of that list where you've enjoyed and experienced the life of God uh, that's helped you. Go. My hope in that was rather than thinking that I'm going to have all the answers for you, which clearly I don't have because I'm still learning as well. I'm learning L plates in this journey like you guys are, but even sharing it with one another you might have heard something you thought, that's a good idea. I'm going to go and try that for myself as well. If it worked for them, it might work for me. So how can we be better frogs? How can we grow in being more reliant on the Lord on a, on a day-to-day, week-to-week basis? That's what we want to explore over the next few Sundays. Um, and I want to just suggest from John 15, first of all, some things which are going to need to be part of our lives if we're really going to be better, as it were, at relying on God, if we're going to see the life of God flow more in us. 
The first of these, encouragingly, is we're going to experience pruning. Now, I won't ask you to have a show of hands at this point. I will just let you know quite happily that I am not somebody who likes pruning. I don't like being pruned. I'm not sure much of the time I like pruning plants either because I'm always sure I'm going to get it wrong. But Jesus is quite clear. If we're going to expect to be fruitful, we've got to be pruned. And for those of you who've ever sort of had the opportunity of seeing vines in winter as opposed to in in summer, you'll realise that the amazingly fruitful, bountiful plant that there was in the sort of spring and summer months suddenly becomes a shriveled stem and you think, how on earth are they going to get hordes of grapes off of that little lump of wood? Because the key, as every wine grower knows, to getting brilliant grapes is you prune this beast back to virtually nothing every autumn, winter, in order that you can get fruit again. And that is what Jesus was applying here. That in order to see fruitfulness come in our lives, we've got to expect God to prune stuff out. And one of the questions I'd encourage us all to take away is, first of all, to think about, okay, where actually have I experienced God cut me back recently? Because I think it does happen. You know, I mean, if you like, I experienced a mild rebuke on Wednesday night that reminded me again, in different ways, God will speak to us. God will do some pruning our lives. But how, where have we experienced pruning? And perhaps more uncomfortably, how willing are we for God to really prune us. If it's true that really effective pruning cuts these vines right back to see more fruit come, how much does that apply to our lives, that actually the more we let God cut deep enough in order to be fruitful, the more we'll see and enjoy the fruit that God wants to grow in our lives? Or are we, like I too often do, hanging on out of, I don't know, fear, lack of trust, desire to stay in control, Oh God, you can't have that. Now, if I let that go, surely life won't work. Or do we actually need to let the the pruning knife of God get in there and get out the dead wood in order that we can be more fruitful? I think we need to ask ourselves as a church as well, where are we hanging on to stuff that we've always done it that way, but actually, you know what? It hasn't really borne any fruit for a couple of seasons now. Maybe it needs to go in order that we can see God produce fresh fruit. So uncomfortably, but really, part of the solution to becoming more reliant is to grow in letting God prune us. The second, equally, obviously, but not always easy, is that we grow in obedience. I want to remind you of the verse that I wrote, I hadn't prepared to find it. Um, It's there in John 15. about obeying his commands. And when did God recently ask you to do something and you thought, God, I can't do that, and you've had to go around the mountain until God asked you again to do it? I think I'm often slow to actively obey what God tells me. We read stuff and we think, that's very nice, but we don't actually realise God's speaking to us in it and we need to put something to practice but if we actually took God seriously, it's through our obedience that we become more fruitful. And the third thing we discover is the importance of prayer. Because when we're close to God, Jesus promised, we can ask anything we like and God's going to grant it to us. And I can see the dynamic there. Because if we are actually living close to God, we're walking closely with him, if we're remaining in the vine, then we're drawing, obviously, on the life of God, but we're getting to know Jesus better. We know his heart. We know that what we ask for is going to be in line with his heart. And that's when we can be confident what we're asking for, what God is really going to give us. It's not some sort of manipulating God thing in our prayer. It comes out of walking closely with him and trusting him because we're walking, as I say, in that real depth of relationship with him. And that what we pray we know is going to be in line with his will. So those Three things out of John 15 are kind of things I believe, again, we all know, 
I'm just encouraging us again this morning, let's not just because we know them think we've got them sussed or think oh, they're too difficult and give up on them. But let's again go back to God and pick up where might God be speaking to us this morning about being willing to be pruned? Where's the stuff we perhaps need to pick up afresh about being more obedient that we've been trying to ignore? And let's not neglect the power and the wonder of prayer. Fourth thing that um, I want to uh, touch on is recognising the importance of the rhythms that God's made for us in our lives. This is something that, as leaders in the church, we've been reflecting a lot over the last few months, and part of our kind of discipling together has been actually looking at this whole issue and asking ourselves just how godly are we being in the way in which we're living our lives and where are those rhythms daily, weekly, monthly in our lives that are actually the rhythms that God's created. God really just highlight highly something a kind of mini revelation I had thinking about this recently. You go back to Genesis and God creates the day in terms of it was day and night. God created months because he set the moon in its cycle around us. And he created years, and then he set the sun's, you know, the Earth's orbit, sorry, the, the, the sun's orbit, uh, the Earth's orbit around the sun. Get me, get me physics right. Um, all right, so just in the way that, that the planets are created and work, you've got days, months, and years. Weeks were what God set in place out of what he modelled to us because God worked for six days and said, enough guys, I'm having a rest. And it was, and it was something about that. I thought, it, there's a physical creation God's made which models something of the rhythms of our lives to us, but actually he took the trouble to create something extra, which is the week, because he took the trouble to stop working after six days in order to show us something that was equally important to us and getting hold of sort of those rhythms I think is something that I'm anyways personally being challenged afresh about and recognizing that if that's how God's created his world how he's created us to live in it then maybe we neglect them at our peril and maybe there's something more to discover them to enjoy than perhaps we do presently In the Old Testament, God gave a framework to help the Israelites understand that, in that he set a hold of offerings that he wanted to take place daily, weekly, monthly, that were kind of their rhythm of worship, that meant that on a daily, weekly, and monthly basis, they were bringing offerings to God. Not sin offerings, not to deal with the sin stuff, just celebrations of God's goodness, that were reminding them daily, weekly, monthly, that God was there and he wanted to be worshipped and to be enjoyed. And because we look at the Old Testament kind of as a legalistic thing, and that was the Old Covenant, and Jesus came to liberate us with a new covenant, and we're not under law now, we're under grace, I think we can ignore some of the Old Testament principle that actually is there to give us life. And I've been challenged just, if God took the trouble to create that pattern, and set it up as a kind of ordinance for the Israelites to follow. And Jesus came to fulfill the law, not to do away with it. Jesus came and said, actually, what you've read in kind of narrow legalistic ways that's been death to you, I want to liberate and bring life to. I want to set you free to enjoy the goodness of the law and understand there's so much more in it than you've done. And he modelled that and demonstrated that in the way they changed their attitude about Sabbath, in the way they changed their attitudes about healing on the Sabbath and so on. And he added to, to, to what the law actually offered. So I want to encourage us to think, actually, okay, so how do we discover these godly rhythms in our, our lives more? Um, one of the things, I think, is the importance of structure. Over the centuries, the church has seen the value of that. Monastic life has modelled that powerfully in the way that prayer has been part of that rhythm. Um, And more recently, flicking back a few slides, 
guys at Val de Brennan have created a daily prayer rhythm. How many of you here have used that? Yeah, there's a good smattering. If you want to find out more about it, note one of those hands, go and ask them about it. It's just a way of helping you build rhythm into your day that helps you stay God-conscious and God-aware. And it's not, it's not a big deal. It's intended to that very thing, to help you find the rhythm of life with God on a day-to-day basis. But structures certainly help us. The second thing that we need is, and I think this is part of the pruning process for us, is some attitudes to go and some better attitudes to grow in our, in our heads. God constantly wants to go on transforming our minds, Romans 12. And I really do believe that it's possible if we're going to enjoy Sabbath as God intended. That needs to be that kind of mindset change. Over this past week, a couple of the books I've been reading, um, and the slide at the end will just help you take these as we want them. A couple of books, in addition to the life you always wanted, is a book written by a friend of Richard Taylor's, Mark Powerly, called Consumer Detox. And then another guy, Canadian author, Mark Buchanan, has written The Rest of God. And in different ways, those authors have highlighted some of the, the issues that I'm going to be kind of sharing this morning that go with this kind of change of mindset. And the first one that just sort of landed with a certainly highly powerful discomfort to me as I read it was the need to deal with hurry. How many of you, come on confession time, and you can't all just be like me, it can't just be me. How many of you go into a supermarket looking for the shortest queue so you can get out of the supermarket quickly? Ah, oh, good, okay, so I'm in good company. Even worse, how many of you, having joined what you think is the shortest queue, then monitor some other queue to check you still get through quickly? Yes! Ah, oh, I'm not the only geek in that respect, okay? Can I suggest to you that's a symptom of trying to live a hurried life? We think we're trying to be efficient, use our time well, but maybe there's something else in that. How many of us value multitasking? The sad sight is me in the morning trying to brush my teeth and put my shoes on at the same time. (laughs) Then there might be the symptom of our hurried lives in that pile of things that you've built up that you're going to read one day that means that you're can't find a seat in your living room or maybe find a place in your bed because it's surrounded by piles of paper from magazine articles you were going to read or the books you were going to read but never got around to quite managing it. But they were so good, you're going to read them one day, but somehow they don't ever happen. One of the dangers of hurry is that it stops us being present. Let me read an uncomfortable quote from Consumer Detox. When it comes to distracting us from others, there's nothing quite like a mobile phone. Mobile phones are able to say in a unique way, I'm with you, but I'm not with you. It could be as blunt as, I'm in your presence, but I'm not listening to you at all. Or it could be more subtle, I'm with you, but only until another offer comes from elsewhere. The point is, technology has made it easier to be distracted from the people around us. The way many of us work now, constantly monitoring our phones, emails, etc., has made this a way of life. It's called continuous partial attention. It's the behaviour of continuously monitoring as many inputs as possible, paying partial attention to each, but never fully paying attention to any one of them. Technology, in that respect, doesn't help us in our hurried lives. There's more stuff that comes piling in that some we've got to learn to manage, and it stops us being present. And the result of all that is that it stops us being unable to love properly. Hurried people cannot love. You find yourself rushing even when there's no reason to. There's an underlying tension that causes sharp words or sibling quarrels. Maybe you set up mock races that are really about your own need to get through. 
You sense a lot of gratitude and wonder. You indulge in self-destructive escapes from fatigue. It's because it kills love that hurry is the greatest enemy of spiritual life. Hurry lies behind much of the anger and frustration of modern life. It prevents us from receiving love from the Father or giving it to his children. That's why Jesus never hurried. If we're to follow Jesus, we must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from our lives because by definition, we can't move faster than the one we are following. Don't know if, I'm, you know, I'm, that is 90% pointing at me. If it lands for you as well, that's great. But I, wanted, I need to show you this morning that one of the challenges for me in this rhythm of life thing is about dealing with this hurry issue um, and realising how much of it is a kind of ridiculous, self-generated thing that actually doesn't make me any more fruitful or more effective. Two simple keys to uh, helping us deal with being hurried people. It is practically to slow down. One of the challenges I've now got to set myself is actually I would join the longer queue and spend my time patiently talking to people in it rather than rushing to get out of the supermarket. Choosing places where I simply have to wait rather than hurrying through life. And the second is seeking solitude, which is, of course, what Jesus did, wasn't it? Every time life kind of got to get under pressure of him, he withdrew to get time with his father. He sought time on his own so he could commune with God more effectively. Solitude is the one place where we can gain freedom from the forces of society that will otherwise relentlessly mould us. But it does require perseverance. It doesn't come easy. I'm not suggesting any of this is easy. But I think if we're going to be serious about engaging in God better and growing in a kind of godly rhythms in our lives, these are the sorts of things we've got to kind of think, how can I work this one through? It requires perseverance, planning. It can start on a daily basis just a few minutes every day that are spent on our own reflecting and praying with God on a weekly basis getting a couple of hours of quiet where we can engage with God and get our souls and spirits restored the other main thing to realise in terms of getting our mindsets changed is realising it's safe to stop which is a statement of faith Because when we stop, we're saying, I'm no longer in control. So for those of us that are control freaks over our own lives, that's a real challenge, but a really powerful thing to do. Because we're stopping, we're saying, okay, what I haven't got done, I'm trusting God for. By stopping, we're saying, I'm letting go of being in control around here and trusting that God is going to keep the universe ticking over because I certainly can't do that right now. It's ceasing to, in ceasing to be controlled to sort everything out, we're exercising faith in recognising that God is still in control. If God is sovereign, which we believe he is, if he works all things together for good, which we believe he does, then we can relax. Stopping is a way of reminding us that God is still in control and we don't need to be. Take that on board, Mr. E. Sabbath is about Stopping. Sabbath means to cease, to desist, to stop, if you like. Sabbath is at the heart of a weekly rhythm in our lives. Um, I just want to talk a bit about that uh, and kind of in our final thinking about godly rhythms. Steve's going to talk a bit more about daily rhythms next week. But I'm going to talk about the Sabbath uh, and what it means to get a weekly rhythm in which God works in us and for us. When he mentioned it's the, it's the one thing that I felt particularly kind of God highlight to me recently in, 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 in the way that we have done. Interestingly, Napoleon and Stalin both tried to do away with seven day weeks. You look, um, both of them tried it, both of them gave up, which makes me think that probably God is bigger after all. Um, but there you have it. In an attempt maybe to try and usurp God, people try and do the seven-day week. There's something about the seven-day pattern that God has established for us that is important to us. So what about this, this weekly rhythm? Um, if we go to Exodus 20 and the Ten Commandments, we read there about keeping the Sabbath. And 
For those of us that can remember, maybe back to previous generations, we'll remember that that meant a whole lot of things you didn't do on a Sunday. You didn't buy newspapers, you didn't go to the cinema, you didn't dance, you didn't watch television. Um, You just sat around all day looking miserable, but you were being really holy. Um, Which was to totally miss the spirit of Exodus 20. Because what actually, in that set of principles that God laid out to the Israelites, is a whole lot of life that he intended them to enjoy. And there's a posy word called being syndochic, which apparently means that what is contained in those words is kind of the tip of the iceberg of what they really mean. Is that all right? I'm looking at my classicist. <laughs> I'm getting a nod. I'm okay. I'm on the ground. And apparently, so I'm reliably informed, that you can take these Ten Commandments to be syndochic, i.e. that what is there is not a kind of narrow don't-do thing. It's a much bigger thing about celebrating life. So when Jesus says don't steal, he's not saying be really good and don't nick anything. He's saying live generously, recognise the abundance of what God's given you. Don't be mean-spirited and nick things off people. Enjoy the goodness of all that God's given you. And when Jesus says remember the Sabbath, he says that's a day beyond others to enjoy because I've given it to you. It's the day to celebrate life, to do you good, to, to renew and to restore and to, to bring back wholeness where it's kind of been eroded. It's a day to stop doing what you ought to do and embrace that which gives life. To stop doing what you ought to do and embrace that gives, which gives life. The stop doing what you ought to do bit you can pick up from Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy 5, the Ten Commandments are restated. But this time, there are one or two just tweaks, one or two differences. And whereas in Exodus 20, it's about remembering the Sabbath, and Moses picks up on the creation aspect of Sabbath, and, and, why, and the fact that God stopped working when he made the world. In Deuteronomy 5, Moses talks about remembering that you were slaves in Egypt. And that they've come out of that because Sabbath is about now celebrating freedom. They're free of the taskmasters that would daily drive them to work harder and harder. And they're celebrating that and remind themselves on Sabbath that they're now free people. What are the taskmasters that we create for ourselves, the oughts and the musts in our lives that give us no rest? So that we come to Sabbaths and we actually we aren't enjoying Sabbaths because the taskmasters of what we've got to do and we ought to be doing, we must be doing, are still driving our heads and wearing us out. So to enjoy Sabbath, we need to cease from doing those things that on a daily basis we feel obliged to do the taskmasters, if you like, that are driving us, and celebrate what gives us life. So, I mean, I'm going to talk in a moment about our own story over the last few months on this. But I think that for each of us, I want to encourage us to think, what restores your soul and your spirit? What reconnects you with God? What does you good that makes you feel fully human again and fully alive again? Because that should be part of our Sabbath. Jesus healed on the Sabbath, he fed people on the Sabbath, he claimed the right to rescue people on the Sabbath, he pursued things that give life. Do what gives life to you and therefore to others. And just in finishing before Eileen comes and shares, a little kind of encouragement really about this Sabbath thing because Sabbath, as I was going to share in a moment is more about attitude and it's about time it's but one of the biggest obstacles to truth Sabbath keeping, strangely enough is leisure this is Mark Buchanan it's what someone a cultural historian has called waiting for the weekend where we see work as only an extended interlude between our real lives 
Leisure is what Sabbath becomes when we know how to sanctify time. Leisure is what Sabbath becomes when we no longer know how to set time aside for us and God. Leisure is Sabbath bereft of the sacred. It's a vacation, literally a vacating, an evacuation. Leisure has become despotic in our age, enslaving us and exhausting us, demanding from us more than it gives. Now, I don't know how much that last statement resonates with you, but I find it challenging that we can focus on thinking that rest equals my leisure and my time when Buchanan's saying to us, hang on a minute, we've got to understand that leisure is what Sabbath becomes when we no longer know how to sanctify time. So we've been grappling with some of that stuff afresh since the new year, and Arlene's going to come and share that now. I'm just going to tell you a quick story which Keith left out. We, were, we went oh, on holiday once with our girls. We went to Italy. It was, it was a really big holiday, a really special holiday. Sarah had just done her GCSEs, and Ruth was, was 20. And uh, we, we, got, we were sat uh, in the queue to get on the ferry at Dover. And Keith said, we're 15 minutes behind schedule. And that was the start of our holiday. We were 15 minutes behind schedule. So for the next two weeks, every now and then, one of the girls would go, Dad, how's the schedule going? Are we still 15 minutes behind? Or not? And then we found ourselves in the middle of the Italian countryside, literally in the middle of absolutely nowhere. And there was a set of traffic lights on a little road, and Ruth and I were desperate to go to the loo. So we were down a little river bank, sort of by the side of the river, having a pee. Nobody anywhere... And Keith shouts out the window, quick, the traffic lights are about to change. (laughs) So he he got a lot of ribbing about that. Um, Yeah, we've been going through an an interesting, bit of an interesting stage, change of life. It started for us last September in that I gave up work and became semi-retired. And so we thought, this is great. TK's laughing. We're going to have loads of time. And the idea was that I still do some independent consultancy. So what happened between September and December was that I decided, unknowingly to myself, that I knew a lot better than God and that basically I had to make sure... I gave up work in response to prophetic word from the Lord that I should do it. And he said, there'll be enough money and life will be fine. That's what he said. But, of course, I know best. So every offer of consultancy I got, I said yes to. Whatever day of the week it came in, whatever happened. So between September and December, we worked twice as hard <laughs> as we'd ever worked. And our day off went out the window, and the whole of our rhythm of life went out the window. And we reached Christmas exhausted and somewhat spiritually emptied. And thought, this is ridiculous. So we repented first, because that's always a good place to start. And took the diary and started being very, very much more ruthless with it. And started practicing a word which is somewhat alien to both of us, which starts with an N and ends in an O. Um, And we put in a period of 24 hours that we called our day off which happens to be on a Friday. And then we put in other stuff around it. We put in a much better daily rhythm of time with God. Now, that might only be 10 minutes in which together we're reading or praying. It might be longer, but we're doing it every day. Um, and we decided to have a look at what we did with our 24-hour period off. We found that 24 hours is really important. Because if we said, sometimes Keith said, well, I'll have Friday morning off and then I need to work Friday afternoon and evening, but I'll take Saturday morning. And we kind of found that for us that didn't really work because we never switched our heads off from the orts and the things that he was talking about. So we've tried to put 24 hours in wherever we can. And then we've had a look at what brings us life. Because actually... We'd got to the stage 
where even the leisure was becoming part of the tyranny. 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 I can't say that. We, we like going to the theatre and we like going to the cinema and we like getting together with friends and having dinner and we were squishing that in with everything else and it was exhausting us as much as anything. Um, it wasn't just having time off to do the stuff we liked. It was looking at that 24 hours and saying, what is going to bring us life in it? And it's included time with our grandchildren, which physically isn't relaxing. It's exhausting, but it brings us life. It fills up our tanks. It reminds us that we are one of the Hebrew blessings was, may you see your children's children. We're blessed. We have seen our children's children. Uh, That fills up our tanks. Spending time with friends where you talk about more than the bread and butter of life, where you talk about hopes and dreams and you, you share what God's done that's good and you share the goodness in their life, you share the goodness in our lives. Fills up our tank. Uh, sometimes just getting time to go out for a meal together and talk or go to the cinema fills up our tank. Sometimes a day in the garden, just getting rid of the clutter. Sometimes Keith cleaning out his garage and me baking fills up our tank. But the point is we're making decisions. Sometimes taking some of that time and praying, I mean, this makes us sound dead spiritual, but we're not. There's something about when you're praying freedom with people. We've we've done quite a lot recently of actually praying um, certain sorts of freedom with people. And that, you go away and you think, wow, that's filled up my tank. It might have looked like work but it wasn't work because it filled up my tank. And it's realizing that um, that it's the attitude that was in our heads, not what we were doing. It wasn't, this is our day off and we've got to do leisure stuff, nothing, nothingnesses in it. Uh, it's, it's realizing that this is a day when we're going to consciously try and tune in to the goodness of God and the goodness that God's put in our lives and the richness that he's put in our lives and celebrate it and that it's fruitful. And Keith does wacky things like turning his phone off. It's crazy, but it's fun. And then he turns it on and it goes bing, 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 bing. There's 55 million emails pinging, but it doesn't matter. He turns it off. Um, and rather than doing that rushing past each other in the corridor and talking, both talking at once about the stuff you've got to talk about, are there any other married couples who do that? You kind of shoot past each other and you're talking about the kids or the practicalities or the stuff. We actually consciously have taken time to to talk more deeply, to, to go down through the layers with each other. And it's been great. And I know there are always 10 million good reasons why we can't do it. Because actually it's meant that our to-do list gets bumped over uh, because of that. You know, there are always lots of good reasons why we can't afford the time to take time. But I think we're healthier people. And we found this interesting thing's happened that what we do do is more fruitful even if there's a little bit less of it, it's more worth doing, which is better in the end than cramming our lives full of stuff that's done half well because there's too much of it. No, I don't need that. I've got this. Good. Thanks, Arlene. Um, so that's it. That's the kind of the, the two-part of this morning. The challenge is, are we living sustainable lives? How are we doing on rediscovering what it is to be frogs? Finding godly rhythms, rediscovering Sabbath. That's the the heart of what I've sought to share this morning. Plenty of questions and challenges to myself in that that I need to take away and keep working on. Um, Sabbath is a gift to man 
man was made for the Sabbath, Jesus said. It's something God prepared for us long ago in the very order of creation. Sabbath is designed to protect us. It's the Father's gift to indulge his children. Sabbath keeps us holy, as well as us keeping the Sabbath holy. Come to me, Jesus said, all who are weary, and I will give you rest. In finishing, I just want to pray for for some of us who may still be sitting there thinking, well, that's all very well, Keith, but... That's all very well, but... That's all very well, but... So we're praying before uh, the meeting this morning. I just felt God underlined to me that any change in our lives is a matter of faith. We can't drum up the energy and... It requires a certain self-discipline and a certain determination, a certain perseverance. But essentially, change comes because the Spirit of God goes to work in us. And it's faith to trust him and surrender to him. So I want to pray for that gift of faith for us fresh this morning. That as the sort of, the ought clamour loudly and the to-do list feel ever, ever longer. And whatever technology you enjoy using maybe clamours for your attention. We can find the faith afresh to take some steps of walking through each day, each week, each month with the Lord in a way that actually is a more godly rhythm in our lives. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you that you want us to enjoy life and life to the full. That's why you came. And you want us to walk that closely with you in order that we can be fruitful. But Lord, we confess that we find it hard to change. We're all different, but in different ways we don't find change easy. And Lord, we're particularly this morning, we're struggling with believing that change is possible. Believing that there is something fresh that you wanted us to discover. Lord, we need that gift of faith. I pray right now, Holy Spirit, you would come and plant that in hearts and minds and souls and spirits this morning. You've got a gift that lands that says, you know what? I can trust God. And it is possible. So Holy Spirit, I invite you to come now and to those that particularly need that gift this morning. Would you come right now and as hands that were outstretched to receive from you, would you land that in their laps as it were? And would you do that, Lord God, that we may all enjoy even more the life that you came to give us? We ask it because we're confident you want to give us that life. We ask it because we're confident you're the God that has the power to do that. So we say thank you. Amen.